I've done a lot of stints at early stage startups. I've been a founder. I know what it's like to have to do everything. <laughs> and, you know, I've had managers who luckily have helped me understand like, hey, not everything is a priority. Even if it seems urgent or seems important, maybe it's not. And it is actually better to sequentially process things rather than parallel process things. And what I've realized by actually trying to live that is you do actually get done faster by doing things one at a time and being hyper-focused rather than saying, oh, I've got five projects, I'll do 20%, 20%, 20% on all of them because then you start incurring those switching costs that I was mentioning. And, uh, you know, you will take 15, 30 minutes to get your brain switched off the first thing and then on to the other thing. That was Shahul's Desai, General Manager of Chief of Staff Network, a community membership for Chiefs of Staff to network and learn from their peers in the industry. Now, Rahul is like the mini CEO of this business. He's the person responsible for making this business profitable while delivering a great member experience. So, if you're managing, building, or planning to build a community membership business, you should continue listening. In this episode, Rahul talks about who his customers are and why they spend the money on this membership. We want to be the preeminent peer support group for chiefs of staff all around the world. And if you go looking for these groups, either they don't exist or they're incredibly pricey. Rahul reveals the tactics that he has used to get member close rate from 30% to 80%. We added friction to the process and it made a world of difference. He'll also talk about why he believes members of small teams should be hyper-focused instead of doing everything. I think when you don't have resources, the way that you deliver speed and quality is by having this maniacal focus on one thing. Finally, Piyush asked him questions on how a 20-year-old should be thinking about their career. I'm fresh out of college. I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I don't want to do what people around me are doing. What should I do? If you're like me, listening to Prozda Krahul can directly help you better at your craft. But you probably don't have one hour every week to listen to all the episodes. That's why you should sign up for our newsletter. We recently started it to share the key insights from these conversations in a more readable format. So, Go to beginnermaps.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter. That's beginnermaps.com. Now, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to Beginner Maps, where we showcase stories of scary career pivots so that you get the courage, path, and role models to carve out a career that you love. start by talking about uh, Chief of Staff. Just uh, give us a two-minute intro on what Chief of Staff is, who are the members, what's the business model. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can go through all of that. So uh, as you mentioned, I've only been in this role for uh, a few months, you know, I think four or five months now. Um, and the Chief of Staff Network, therefore, of course, predates me. It was founded in 2016 as a dinner club for Chiefs of Staff by a guy named Scott Amenta. He's still involved, but uh, sort of doing other aspects of the business now. And um, I was brought on to be the general manager, sort of lend a commercial focus to the business, aid in growth, sponsorships, sort of really get that business aspect of it to the next level, not just the thriving community that it was. 
Um, and so really what we're about is we want to be the preeminent peer support group for chiefs of staff all around the world. And if you go looking for these groups, either they don't exist or they're incredibly pricey or there's no way of knowing what the quality is going to be uh, before you, you sign up. And what we're trying to do is be a place where we'll show you, you know, upfront, if you come to interview, we'll show you what you're going to get. Um, and we try to be hyper-focused on tools and tactics, right? Because in this role, chief of staff is so amorphous and so vague. And basically every chief of staff role is different. And so what we're trying to do is optimize how quickly you can learn the problems that you have and how to solve them. Because um, ultimately, like, the speed of execution in that role is what will dictate your success or failure. And uh, often it's a very lonely role. You know, in many companies, you're the only one who has that title. There's no one you can talk to because you're often dealing with sensitive HR issues or, or financing or other confidential types of problems. And so really, this is a place where you can come and feel that you can ask any question. No one's going to think you're stupid. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to violate your trust. You know, in all the years that this community has been active, I've never heard of a case where someone has violated the trust of another member by sharing something that they should not have. Um, and so that's sort of the overview of the community is I really boil it down to we're a peer support group for chiefs of staff. And our members uh, really are quite variable in sort of their backgrounds, where they come from, where they work. We've got people at, you know, 10 person companies all the way up to your 10,000 plus person Fortune 500s. Um, our biggest sector by far is enterprise software, so B2B SaaS companies. Um, our next largest group is finance and fintech, and then we have a long tail of everything else. You know, we've got folks at nonprofits, we've got folks in political consulting, you know, biotech, agriculture, you name it. Like, we've got folks all over the place. And uh, often these people join for the reasons I mentioned, is that they often feel very lonely in their role. They don't have someone they can talk to. They're facing a lot of new problems, either to them or to their business. And so they don't know where they can go to learn more about solving those problems. And often these are problems that have been solved somewhere else in the world, but the solutions are never shared because it's a competitive advantage to not share those things. And so really the reason people join is you get this massive community of 670 plus chiefs of staff. And uh, our business model really revolves around that member and the dues that they pay. So our membership dues are 85 a month or 850 for the year. So if you do the year, you get two months free. And uh, we, we really feel that we're leaving some money on the table so that we can be more accessible to as many people as we can reach. Uh, you know, across all these geographies, across companies of different sizes, there are other associations out there that charge, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. We feel that that's not really right, because there are people at small companies who would really benefit from the resources we offer, but their budget is not, you know, $2,000, $5,000, dollars it's $500. And uh, so we work really hard to provide scholarships and make it so that people uh, across all stages, sizes, geographies can really find a home with us. And, uh, you know, that was a ramble for me, so I'll pause there. <laughs> not a ramble at all. This was great. Um... I don't really know much about the chief of staff role. So uh, hearing a little bit about this, you know, this was very interesting to me. Uh, I want to uh, like focus on three things that you said. So you said yeah. that um, such a support network does not exist. And uh, one of the things that you do is that 
you uh, make it more accessible by uh, you know having a very um, accessible price point to the community, and then um, you you make it very transparent on what people get before they enter the community. So uh, take me through uh, each of them. Uh, so you already mentioned about why you're uh, you have lowered the price point. Tell me why doesn't uh, support groups for chiefs of staff exist more uh, you know more around the world. Yeah, so there, it's kind of interesting. The role didn't really proliferate until probably the pandemic. If you look back mm -hmm. on the prevalence of these roles, looking at compensation data or the Wayback Machine for job job sites and whatnot, um, the reason that our community was initially founded back in 2016 was that our founder, Scott, just felt really lonely in his role. You know, like I was mentioning, he was the only chief of staff at his company. He didn't know anyone else with the title. And he started asking around at, with his investors, his founders, hey, do you know anyone who's doing this kind of work? And so it started off as this group of five people, and then it grew and snowballed from there. But even today, when I talk to people who want to join from Asia and uh, various countries in Africa, they're still saying, oh, this role is not well understood here. Uh, people think, oh, I'm an executive assistant or I'm a secretary or something like that. And that's not really what these people are doing. They are strategic leaders. They're thought partners to their executives. And, uh, and often, in, in many cases, they are often executives in their own right. And I think what's happening is that this shift from the chief of staff role appearing a lot in the military and government in uh, medicine is now transitioning into the private sector that happened in the US in let's call it the mid-teens. Um, it's proliferated quite a lot here. I think we now see the transitioning happening in Europe. And then if you get into uh, you know, LATAM, Asia, Africa, it's basically infinitesimal in the rate at which you see this role appear. And now I think this year, finally, we're seeing people really start to pick up steam on this role. And so I think that's why the communities don't really exist. Like you'll see some local groups pop up, a bunch of friends who get together for lunch or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's admirable. I think more people should be doing that uh, to stave off a lot of the loneliness you see in this role. But the reason why you don't see these massive global networks is because there was no reason for them up until, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, Makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah. And, um, and what do you think is the... Um, the impact of price point on the community because uh, I understand that uh, communities and membership communities, since they're made up of people and the, the value that you get is from the people themselves. So um, the price point that you have, it changes the entire uh, value that the member receives. Have you felt this? Yeah, so there are... I've done actually a ton of research on communities and pricing because I, I was curious, like, what, where could we raise our prices to without really hitting that cutoff of we're no longer accessible? And for us, we often have our memberships paid by L&D budgets, right? It's companies saying, oh, I think this is a worthwhile spend for you to grow as my chief of staff. Why don't you go there? We'll cover it, whatever. Um, and what we see is that those budgets really, at, at startups especially, you know, I'm not talking about the biggest companies out there, but at startups, these budgets often are in the hundreds of dollars, maybe up to 1,000, but not really more than that. And um, so I, I see these three tiers of spend on communities. There are communities where you pay, well, 
let's call it four tiers. There, there are free communities, right? You join them because they're not charging anything. They're probably making money by having a massive base of uh, people joining, huge audience, and then they make their money on sponsorships and affiliate sales and things like that. Um, and there are a lot of very successful communities that have done that, right? You, if you think of the communities that have hundreds of thousands of members, they're really monetizing off these sponsorships, doing conferences, stuff like that. And uh, that's, of course, a very viable model. And then you have communities where you pay out of pocket. And those are really like, you know, you spend up to $50 a month, let's call it. That's sort of the cutoff, especially now where people are becoming so price sensitive given what's happening in the broader macro economy. Um, so really you're not going to be seeing people pay more than, you know, 25, 50 bucks for some of these communities where they're expected to pay out of pocket. And then you've got communities like us where it's, uh, let's call it like the 500 to $1,000 range per year. Um, and those are, you know, it's a little tough to get people to pay out of pocket for that. It's really a corporate outlay uh, of L&D expenditure. And then at the very high end of the market, you have communities that are executive facing and their price point is many thousands of dollars per year. And there are communities in the operator space, you know, the big community that's been around for decades that we can point to is Young Presidents Organization, YPO, that, uh, you know, many people know of it, and uh, their price point is enormous. Um, and most people can't afford it. Like, you know, you have to be the CEO typically to be able to afford that kind of a budget. Um, and that's really the sorts of four things that I see in community land. Um, Typically, the most successful ones are the low end of the market and the high end of the market. Either you're charging the massive fees and you have a few customers, or you're free and you're making the money on the back end off sponsors. And so it remains to be seen whether we're actually in no man's land and like there's a ceiling <laughs> on growth here, but uh, sort of that's where we're at and uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love this uh, riff about pricing and community because um, I think it's really smart to go after the uh, L&D budget because I remember when I was working at a startup and they had an L&D budget, um, there was a channel where uh, members of the team would post like some of the ways that they've been using their, uh, their budgets. and. Um, mm -hmm. In my experience, I think that most people do not know how to spend their budgets, like $500,000 that they have for um, personal L&D. So going after these budgets and providing something valuable with them, uh, I think it can be a really um, lucrative uh, business model. <laughs> I think you may be on the right track. Yeah. It's, I mean, certainly going after L&D makes a lot of sense. They're, we're sort of in this interesting place where people find us as individuals and then we teach them how to use their L&D budget through uh, pages on our website and scripts and stuff like that that they can use. And often it's a pretty easy conversation because of the price point seeming relatively fair for what you get in the offering. Um, but to do the real enterprise sale, right? To go to an HR manager and say, hey, I want to upskill your entire team of 10, 50, 100 people. The price is going to be you know, 50 to $100,000. That's a very different sale. And uh, I personally don't know yet, at least, how to navigate that sort of a thing. Right. And uh, okay, this this brings us to my uh, my next question, uh, which is how did you get the, uh, the close rate from 30% to 80% tell us? Yeah, that's, um, it's a great question because I actually just created an internal training on it so that people in the future <laughs> will understand what we do. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> earlier this morning. So it was very timely to ask this. Uh, <laughs> And really, 
what we were doing wrong in the beginning was that our website was all over the place. Like often in marketing and sales, you hear about your funnel and having a leaky funnel or a funnel that really draws people through. And we were unsure what we wanted people to do. Like we were prioritizing all these different behaviors that were contradictory to, to each other. So on our uh, website- Give me an example, like what were the yeah. different behaviors? Yeah. So on our website, in our nav bar, we had like probably 10 plus different links you could click through. That's confusing and distracting. So we cut that back to probably four top level things and then some bullets underneath. Um, and then on the web page, we had- uh, we were directing people to apply for the paid membership. But then at the time, we also had this free membership called Insider. But we didn't do enough education about what the difference was between Insider and Pro, the paid one. And um, eventually, I ended up killing this Insider membership because it was a distraction. Like, we saw hundreds of people flocking there instead of going into the paid membership for, you know, objectively a worse offering. And then people would come back to me and say, oh, I'm a member, right? And I'm like, not really. You know, you don't get access to Slack. You don't have the networking. You don't have a lot of these things that are the cornerstone of the community. You don't really have a community to speak of, right? You're getting our newsletter. You're getting some other incidental things. Um, and so killing that was a massive thing we did. Uh, you can go in the Wayback Machine and see what our website looked like in uh, September of last year when I joined. It's massively different now. It's just a much more focused experience. It is really pointing you towards that application moment of here's our pro membership. You should apply. Here are all the reasons to do that. Um, and then that sort of all, all those, like they were tons of changes across the website. I think probably 50 plus changes in terms of copy and web pages and links and stuff like that. Um, but then, and all that was accretive a little bit, like that drove probably 10% improvement. And then, you know, the next obvious question is, well, what drove the other 40%? <laughs> um, and that was really doing interviews. We added friction to the process and it made a world of difference. Um, what we used to do was basically, we had people apply, they would write up their little bio of why they deserve to be in the community. They would give us LinkedIn and, um, we would go look at that and basically thumbs up, thumbs down. You should be in the community. You should not be in the community. And it was all very transactional, right? It was all very email driven. And um, there was no sense of humanity in it, right? Like it's a community. It should feel like there are people here. Um, and so we implemented this inter admissions interview process, which I think made a huge difference because A, it enabled us to learn more about people who were doing chief of staff work but didn't have the chief of staff title for whatever reason. And often companies do that because they don't want to pay you more. So aside to people who are listening and uh, want to know why that happens to them, um, it uh, this interview made a world of difference because what we saw was that people who were interested but not interested enough wouldn't email us their questions. But when they were in the meeting with me for admissions, we would talk about why they should be in the community. We would talk about their background. You know, a lot of the stuff that you asked me early on um, and that we've talked about uh, aside from this uh, sort of call, um, there was no venue for them to share that. And then there was no venue for them to say, oh, here are my questions about the community. And having that moment together with me um, enabled them to say, oh, I'm wondering about the events you do, or I'm thinking about these classes. Can you tell me more? Um, and I think a lot of that sort of ability to have Q&A drove a, a big amount of the difference. 
I think having a human face and seeing, oh, this is something real. And I show off like, here's the Slack, here's the courses, here's all the stuff. You know, being able to see that live is extremely valuable because it's very humanizing. And then you see all the stuff that our members are talking about every single day. And, uh, you know, we all know that some of these communities that got founded during the pandemic are ghost towns now. And that's a real fear, especially if you're paying a lot of money to join that community. And so for us being able to show, okay, there's people here, there are human beings, they're helpful, that's extremely valuable. And then um, just being able to talk to people about their pricing and see if they need a scholarship, especially in some of these regions that are not earning the same disposable income as you see in the US and Western Europe. Um, you know, sometimes those people would uh, get the prior emails transactionally that we used to have and say, oh, the price is this much? Like, I can't afford that. I don't even earn that much. Um, and so being able to talk to people and hear from them, oh, I think my company can't cover that, but they can cover this much. Can you help me? You know, that enables me to go look at our financials and say, oh, can we do a scholarship here? Can we help this person out a little bit? And that goes back to this virtue of, you know, we want to be accessible and inclusive to people. And uh, that all of that ultimately, like the website changes plus the interview and sort of the knock-on effects of that interview is how we got that uh, close rate up to 80%. Wow, okay. Um, so this interview process, I wanna just uh, focus on this one because this makes a ton of sense. What you just said about how um, having this face-to-face -face experience can make the members, uh, you know, more uh, more comfortable with the community and what you're offering. That makes a lot of sense. Why that would incre increase the conversion rates? But um, like when you when the I want to go to the moment when you were making this decision about introducing this admissions process and the number one uh, the number one fear that I would have about this is that it's not scalable or it will require too much of manpower because just clicking like a yes or no on the uh, every applicant's uh, application, that requires much less effort than to have a 30 minute interview with every single applicant that comes in. So was how did you uh, think about this? Great question. Um, so it's not a 30 minute interview. I figured out how to condense it into a 15 minute interview, okay. which makes a world of difference. Um, and actually, in the most productive interviews, you can actually even get it down to like 10 minutes. And uh, so there is like marginal efficiency to be had on the timing element. I think 30 minutes is like this anchor. Uh, it's a bias that we all have of like, oh, that's the standard length of a meeting. And wow. what I find is that having the default actually be 15 is both better for me and more attractive to these busy people, right? A chief of staff right. often, is if not an executive, like a manager level person in their own right. And they're busy. These people are either in meetings all day, they're doing very big projects. They don't really have extra time to be taking on these like extraneous meetings. Um, and so to be able to say, hey, I only need you for 10, 15 minutes, extremely valuable to them. And showing that, hey, our focus is on efficiency, productivity. That's our whole ethos here is that's what we wanna do for you. Um, it's a little bit of, it's a way of living what we try and preach to these people, you know? Mm. And uh, walk me through these 15 minutes. Like, so do you have, uh, you must have some script prepared or uh, yeah. how, yeah, what, what does it, can you uh, walk me through it? Yeah, absolutely. So the first few minutes, um, and this, I didn't go in with the script. I sort of just had conversations with people until I figured out what worked. 
and uh, you know how I could deliver the most value. And ultimately, that's what that conversation ended up being about was how do we demonstrate value to people? It's not like I'm not a good salesperson at heart. Like I didn't grow up in sales. I don't have any sales background. I never learned sales formally. And this whole idea of sales, and you know, we've talked separately about how I'm an introvert. Uh, this whole idea of sales is kind of icky to me. And so I really tried to reframe this conversation of how do I find that a person is the right fit for us? And how do I demonstrate that we can be the right fit for you? And so that, that way, it's a much more collaborative discussion and something that I am interested in doing and having a conversation about. Not so much of like, hey, I'm going to shove my product down your throat. Um, <laughs> so with all that said, the way we approach this, uh, you know, after I've done, I think, probably 100 interviews in the last two months, wow. um, we start off by saying, hey, how did you find us? Because that's the lifeblood of any community is figuring out what channels are driving people. Um, and for us, it's really a lot of uh, LinkedIn and a lot of search engine uh, results pages. And we don't pay for either of these in terms of advertising. We just have built a sizable blog and we people have shared our links and they, you know, for whatever reason, people see us on LinkedIn. I'll praise the algorithm for doing that. <laughs> I don't know really how it happens, but... Uh, I think those are the nice, uh, like now we actually understand, okay, people find us these ways. If we want to take out ads, here's how we can do that. If we want to do these things, you know, we can understand how we can build out our channels further. And then the third thing, which of course is the one that I love the most is word of mouth. Because what I find is that great people attract great people. When we hear that our members are happy with us and they're referring their friends, um, there's nothing more gratifying than that in a community business, right? Like if you hear in your podcast, oh, like Rahul referred me his friends to come be a speaker, or now we have new listeners, that feels good, right? At least to me, it feels very warm and fuzzy that someone believed in me and my team enough that um, they wanted to send their friends here. And uh, so that's really what we spend the first little bit of the interview on. Uh, you know, how'd you find us? That's probably two minutes. And then we do uh, probably another two minutes on what are you looking to gain? And really that's how I find, is there a fit here or not? Because if you're coming to me and saying, oh, I really am trying to use this network as a way to sell to people, that's not going to be a fit. We really don't tolerate spamming people in our community. Um, it's like a one strike, it's a two strikes policy. You know, you do it once, I'll give you a warning. You do it again, we're gonna have a problem. Um, and so, you know, what I really want to hear about is, do you know about us? Have you read on our website uh, the courses that we offer? Do you know what we're all about? Like, have you researched a little bit of what you're looking to gain? Because that, that's how we know there's a fit. And then the rest of the time, I really spend on catering to what questions they have. And so often I want to show them the community. And so we go through the Slack. I mentioned, oh, we have this number of members. They're all active in here. Here's our main Slack chat. Uh, people are posting every single day, typically getting between one and 25 responses, depending on the complexity of the question. Um, I talk them through sort of our course offerings that we have. We've got a number of courses focused on the role, and then we've got general skills classes. I talk about our events. I often look at or ask them where they're calling in from. And if there's been a live event in person in their region, I mention that, or if there's something coming up, I talk to them about that as well. Um, so really, it's really just a lot about what value can we deliver for you. And then we end the interview by saying, all right, well, the dues are going to be $85 a month or $850 for the year. That covers everything we've talked about. There's no hidden fees. 
Um, because people worry about that, right? Especially these days. It's, uh, you know, you want to save every extra cent. Um, and so that's very attractive to people is that you're getting all of these things for a, a fair price. And then we talk about how you can go back to your manager and discuss, you know, how to get uh, reimbursement from your company. Most people, uh, that's a pretty easy slam dunk for them to do. Mm -hmm. wow, this is very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing this uh, your script with me because I myself consider uh, myself like afraid of sales and uh, you know I would totally it would scare me to my bones to walk into uh, a, a sales interview thinking that I need to convince this person to buy something now but um, the way that you're talking about it how it is a collaborative process makes it feel very doable even for me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, uh, I want to understand more about your responsibilities as a general manager there. Uh, so, what? Uh, so you're obviously doing interviews. Um, what else are you focused on? Yeah. So I, you know, there, there was this adage in Techland years ago where people would say like the product manager is the mini CEO of the product or something like that, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, at the risk of being a little bit flip, that kind of is my responsibility. Ultimately, I'm the PL owner for this line of business. And um, my goal is really make us profitable while also balancing delivering a great member experience. And early on when I joined, it was a little bit difficult to know what I should be focusing on. Uh, what ended up happening was that I focused a lot on improving our website and this process to get new members in. Um, but really, the way I approach my role is highly experimental. I try and look at our metrics and see like, oh, our website's failing on these metrics, or, you know, our search engine ranking is falling by these in these ways or whatever. But ultimately, we have I have built uh, these massive data dashboards that tell me everything about our business, like, how much revenue are we doing? How many members have we added? Uh, how many people have left for whatever reason? Um, on and on and on. You know, what sponsors have we had? What events are we doing? And based on those, I try and figure out what levers can I pull uh, either directly myself or by working with my team to improve our overall business and of course, deliver value for the members. Because ultimately the business does not exist unless we deliver value for the members. Um, and so a lot of my focus has been these admissions interviews and this overall notion of admissions because there wasn't really someone focused on it before. And what I realized was I was capable of doing it. I had some of the skill sets that would enable me to do it. And I was less upset by doing it uh, than other people on the team. I, you know, I have other teammates who have gotten- Less upset than other huh? members. I love how you put it. You were less <laughs> upset than the other members. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've got, I've got another uh, teammate named David. David is exceptional at events and programming. And initially when I joined, I didn't really know how to staff him up on things. I didn't know what to make his focus be. And this quarter I've told him in, you know, in conversations, we've realized, oh, he should really be focused on events. And he did this conference in New York last week. It drove a bunch of revenue for us. People gave us amazing remarks as to, you know, how helpful it was for them. We had a sponsor come. The sponsor was very happy with how it worked out. And our keynote speaker was formerly the chief of staff to Ariana Huffington of Huffington Post. 
Wow. So, you know, David made all of this happen by himself, row revenue, like he's booked, I think, or executed already 20 events this quarter, which is nuts. Like the level Thank of productivity <laughs> is insane. And like we, I would, you know, I and pr prior managers were responsible for giving him whiplash in previous quarters where we would tell him, do this, no, do this, no, do this, no, do this. And it was all different stuff. And, you know, we all incur switching co costs mentally when we try and do different things. And so what I've come to realize is, you know, when we're a small group, we're, we're three people, um, we're really under-resourced. And so you have to be hyper-focused about what each teammate is focusing on and what they're executing. And really, I think when you don't have resources, the way that you deliver speed and quality is by having this maniacal focus on one thing. And so David is really just the events guy. You know, he's he delivers on member experience through the framing of events. And then we've got uh, a team member named Ankit, and Ankit is focused on basically uh, help desk and all of the ancillary uh, parts of the experience. So if you've got a billing question, Ankit will help you on that. If you've got an account management question, um, a lot of our newsletters are drafted by Ankit. And so he's doing all these things behind the scenes um, that deliver sort of these other supports for member experience. And then where I sort of focus is where do we drive commercial value, right? I'm basically focused on the business and the, the profit and loss statement of the business. And so what that looks like is how do we increase our member base? How do we get more sponsors? How do we think about launching other communities that might be beneficial to the overarching offering? Because we don't just run Chief of Staff Network, we run another community called BizOps Network. We're thinking about launching uh, some other communities as well in the, you know, the near to midterm future. And uh, really, that's where my responsibilities lie. It's like, to some degree, I have become a salesperson. <laughs> I love it. And um, okay, so you said just uh, a lot of stuff there. You're like the mini CEO of this community. And um, this, this makes it abundantly clear. And then I, I love the, the way that you described. Uh, you changed the style from having a, a team member being focused on everything to making them hyper-focused. And you know, just focusing on their strength instead of, uh, uh, you know, just spreading it, spreading them thin. Um, I love this. I love this so much because this can be like, even though it makes sense because uh, you said that you're a team of three and, uh, you know, you have to be hyper-focused to deliver on quality. But what happens is that when you're a small team, you're asked to do everything. Like that's what pe most people have uh, their managers asking of them. Um, so I, I just love your uh, framework around this management. Yeah, I think what I've, you know, I used to be the sort of person that would try and do every task. I've done a lot of stints at early stage startups. I've been a founder. Um, I know what it's like to have to do everything. <laughs> and, you know, I've had managers who luckily have helped me understand like, hey, not everything is a priority. Even if it seems urgent or seems important, maybe it's not. And it is actually better to sequentially process things rather than parallel process things. Uh, and what I've realized by actually trying to live that is you do actually get done faster by doing things one at a time and being hyper-focused rather than saying, oh, I've got five projects, I'll do 20%, 20%, 20% on all of them. 
um, because then you start incurring those switching costs that I was mentioning. And, uh, you know, you will take, you know, 15, 30 minutes to get your brain switched off the first thing and then on to the other thing. And so, yeah, focus, I think, has been exceptionally valuable. And if I was to recommend a book on this topic, it would be Amp It Up. It's uh, written by the CEO of Snowflake, and it's very much about this notion of urgency and focus. And then uh, there was a, a podcast with Ravi Gupta um, on Invest Like the Best. And uh, mm -hmm. he was one of the execs at Instacart. Now he's a partner at Sequoia. And uh, his podcast was entirely, it was like titled Focus. It was great. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And um, yeah, if I can recommend like uh, another book. So this is something that I'm currently reading. It's called Stolen Focus. And um, mm. uh, this, uh, this book also talks about a lot of what you just said about how uh, doing different tasks has switching costs and um, you, you, we think that we are multitasking, but the concept of multitasking was not meant for humans, it was for computers. So um, we are terrible at multitasking and we humans as a species, we are only monomaniacally, we can only focus on one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Okay, uh, Rahul, so now I'm gonna take us, uh, to a game, a little game that Piyush has prepared for us. And uh, okay. over to you, Piyush. <laughs> Thanks, Hadesh. Rahul, so what we're going to do in this game is I'm going to say some times of the week and you tell me what you may be typically doing by then. Sounds good? Sounds good. <laughs> okay. What are you doing 10 a.m. on a Saturday? Oh, man. Um, Typically, actually exercising. So my uh, fiance and I go to an exercise class uh, every week. And typically that's either nine or 10 on Saturday mornings. And uh, the trainer is an ex-Marine. So, you know, from the American military, he's very intense. And uh, I spend the rest of my Saturday tired. So that, that's typically <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine like tra being trained by an ex-marine on Saturday morning. <laughs> it's intense. Um, he, uh, at one point, so he has a very long driveway outside of the facility that we train at. And it's, you know, it's very no frills. It's like someone's garage. It doesn't even have a bathroom. Uh, and one, at one point he's like, oh, I don't have a weight that's the right size. Just carry my son. And his son was there like, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's what I do on Saturdays. <laughs> okay, now what do you do 8 a.m. on a Monday? 8 a.m. on a Monday. So, um, you know, on this notion of focus and I think one thing that sort of comes out of focus for me is time boxing. I am someone who really lives and dies by my calendar. Like I use my calendar as my to-do list. Uh, you know, I have you guys scheduled on my calendar, then I have my next thing scheduled on my calendar. And every day I start my day with uh, email processing. And so every single day of the week, uh, weekdays at least, sometimes weekends depending, um, I process all of my email inboxes because I have multiple, I have ones for each community. And then I've got um, like an overarching one that collects everything else like sponsorships and stuff like that. Um, and so typically I, I block half an hour at 8 a.m. to go through my email. And then I try not to look at my email until the next time that I have blocked to look at email. So noonish typically. And uh, the other thing that I do is Readwise, which is a, uh, it's a flashcarding system 
for highlights you've taken on Kindle and other reading softwares. And that enables me to remember things that I've learned from the books that I've read. Uh, and I didn't realize how much I was forgetting prior to using this tool, but wow, tons, tons of stuff that I have forgotten over the years that I've read books. But uh, yeah, typically that's what 8 a.m. actually every day looks like for me. Oh yeah, that's an interesting tool. Read wise, you said, right? Yeah. Okay. Now 7 p.m. on a Friday. Oh man. Um, probably having dinner slash playing with my dog. And so my fiance and I try and make it a point to have dinner together as much as we can. She's very busy, and uh, you know I tend to be fairly busy as well. And so one thing that growing up was exceedingly important for me and my family was that we would always have family dinner together. Um, and so what we try to do is uh, either have our family dinner together or we sometimes invite friends or go out. But typically around 6, 7 p.m., that's what we're doing. And uh, my dog is very needy. She's one year old and so she's still very much a puppy and uh, just wants to be petted and played with and stuff like that. So in the evening after I'm done with work, that's typically what we also do as well. I love it. <laughs> and lastly, what you may be doing uh, by 10 p.m. on a Wednesday? Um, you know, we were talking earlier about video games. I'm very much a <laughs> casual gamer, but I do, I do play a lot of video games. And so... Um, whatever the either i'll be playing a new release or an older release that i've wanted to replay like one of the blockbuster game of the year type games like like i was mentioning the witcher 3 and so uh, recently yeah. that's what i've been up to late at night like <laughs> playing the witcher 3 or um on nights that i'm sort of video gamed out i'll try and read and so i've been I had a big kick of nonfiction books and then i i had forgotten how much i liked fiction and fantasy especially and so I've gotten myself back into fantasy books and I'm on this trilogy called uh, The Bone Ships, which um, sort of like high seas, swashbuckling pirate stuff and there's dragons involved. It's a lot of stuff going on, but actually quite entertaining. The author has done a good job of creating this separate world and she's come up with like separate words and vocabulary and stuff like that, which makes it feel a lot more real. And yeah. uh, that's been nice. And then this, they're very good about describing how the ship runs. And I've even learned some things about like, oh, I see parallels in my business to how you're describing how the ship runs. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. Well, what uh, parallel? Either yeah, video games you, or fantasy. Do you remember any specific parallel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is... I don't remember the exact quote, but the thing that really stuck out to me, I think in the, the second book in the trilogy was that the this idea of loyalty to the ship and discipline about your loyalty to the ship actually is the superseding concern to everything else. Like being loyal to the ship is more important than being loyal to the captain. It's more important than being loyal to the first mate. Like there's a hierarchy of your loyalties for sure, but ultimately, you want to be loyal to the ship, the entity, the higher purpose of the thing itself. And then there's this phrase that they say, because um, like this whole society is governed by the, their Navy and uh, the Navy is called the fleet. And so the phrase that they keep repeating over and over is we are fleet. And um, 
it's kind of interesting how much flows out of that concept of, you know, you're part of this institution, your loyalty is to the institution. Um, yeah, and I, I think to some degree, like, I almost expect that more than I expect loyalty to me. Like, what I really want is for people in my team to tell me, oh, you're being dumb in this way, or this idea doesn't make sense. I want people to be loyal to the institution, not to me. Fascinating. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know how to wind down at the end of the day. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that brings to the end of this round. Back to you, Nitesh. Thank you. Thanks, Yush. <laughs> This was fun. I loved it. Um, it was good. Now, uh, take us back to the questions, Rahul. Uh, I want to talk about how you got to where you are right now. So um, tell me, uh, how did you get uh, at this role at Chief of Staff? Yeah, so I had zero intention of landing myself into the community business, like broader consumer social space. Um, I've all my life, I've been a B2B like enterprise person. Uh, and so it was very interesting. Like, I don't think anyone who knew me well would have said, oh yeah, Rahul, like he's going to be a community manager. <laughs> um, and so the way I fell in here was I was working on, I spent my entire career in strategy and ops and I've done a bunch of resume reviews, panel interviews, hiring, like I probably reviewed over 300 resumes at this point. I've probably been on, you know, a hundred plus panels. Uh, you know, I probably contributed to the hiring of at least 50 to 75 people, I think. Wow. Um, and what I keep finding is like operators almost never have all of the skills I want. And that was also true of me when I was coming out of school and early in my career, I did not have the skills that I would have wanted. And I've been very fortunate that people have taken chances on me and enabled me to learn on the job. But right before taking on this chief of staff role, I founded this company, Upslope. And Upslope was meant to be a boot camp for operators to learn all of the things no one ever teaches you on the job. And so we started with something very simple, which is email productivity. You know, you as you get more senior, you get more emails. And in my role prior to Upslope, when I was the chief of staff, I was getting on the order of 100, 200 emails a day. And uh, it was detracting from my ability to actually do my job. And I had to figure out, well, how do I process these 100, 200 emails in the span of a half hour, not in like three hours? So that way I can get back to doing the things that I was hired to do. Um, and so I created a course based on that. And then I thought, well, all right, there's a bunch of other knock-on things that I've learned that no one has ever taught me. I've just kind of learned them, like how to negotiate, how to... Uh, storytell a little bit in the business sense, how to cold outreach to people, um, you know, things like strategy. How do you find insight about a business? Um, what do you mean by creating courses? So uh, did you just record yourself? So it was a cohort-based class. It was sort of, it was live. And so I spent the better part, I was thinking about this for a long time. So I spent a year like drafting up all the lecture notes, all of the slides, everything else. And I got together uh, some cohorts of people and then we would meet up in the evenings for like a quarter. We would go through 25 lessons together. Um, and uh, actually at least one of the people who went through my class used some of the skills to get a better job. 
So I was very happy. I think she doubled her income, uh, which wow. made me extremely happy. That's amazing. Um, and then other people are you like someone emailed me back uh, just I think last week or two weeks ago saying, "Oh yeah, your class on SQL queries." Like I used that the other day. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's been really gratifying. And uh, as I was going through that, I basically realized like, oh, getting customers is really hard. Uh, maybe. I can go talk to this chief of staff network. They seem like they might need classes like this. <laughs> and so I ended up talking to Scott, who the founder, and I talked to Tom, who uh, has also been involved in the community. Um, basically, the way chief of staff network runs is that we're part of this larger consortium of communities. And uh, Tom is sort of is the CEO of that group. And basically, Tom and I uh, you know, built this relationship. He actually went to university at the same place that I did. I didn't know him, but we had a lot of mutual friends and a lot of people that I talked to said, oh yeah, Tom's great. Like you want to work for him. Um, and based on all of that, we came to this conclusion that actually this consortium should buy up. And so I ended up exiting to them. The IP has now become part of the chief of staff network offering, the BizOps network offering. And uh, that's how I landed here. It's amazing. Okay. Uh... I have so many questions there because um, like you said that uh, you were never a person who, you know, who would have done any community things. And that you here you are starting your project and your company, teaching cohorts and individuals. Uh -huh. uh, how did that happen? Tell me. <laughs> so the interesting thing, and this was actually very wrong headed of me when I was a solo founder was I was trying to do like per B2C sales effectively. Like I was going out, I was going in Slack groups, I was going on LinkedIn saying, hey, do you as an individual want to come join this uh, class? And that's how I really framed it. And yes, we had a Slack and yes, we did cohorts and stuff like that. But really it was like, you came to get the lecture materials and you came to talk to me. And that's why people showed up. And in hindsight, I really would have led with community as a demand generation mechanism. It would have said like, hey, you can get onto our wait list. And by being on the wait list, you can join our Slack immediately. The Slack has tons and tons of people in it. And we've actually got a channel dedicated to every class in every topic area. Um, if I could do it all over, I would have done that. Because I think I then would have had a pool of people who were really excited to talk about these materials. And then getting them to be paying customers would have been a slam dunk. Um, rather than a hard slog, which is what it was. Uh, and so that's kind of how this idea of community became viable in my mind was, hey, like I have these classes. I want to get these classes in front of people. These guys have communities. It seems like there's a natural fit here. Like I want more people to benefit from these classes. Let's make the demand gen a lot easier. And uh, mm -hmm. community seems to be the way of doing that. Like you even see companies now creating their own internal communities, uh, whether that's, you know, in the olden days, that was like the uh, forums for Salesforce. Like that's one of the early communities that I can think of. And, uh, you know, now you've got things that are, you know, there's one called operational analytics for census, which is a data transfer ELT type product. And I'm seeing more and more of that of like, a product is creating a community, not in a spammy way, but to a little bit direct back to their product. 
Yeah, um, this is interesting. And uh, I love especially how you um, you were able to uh, create this cohort and then ultimately you were able to get something very meaningful out of it and uh, land here at Keep Us South, which, uh, where you are just killing it. <laughs> so it all worked out really well. Yeah, I, um, I'm really happy it worked out. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> I think trying to do everything on my own was a little dangerous. I see why people <laughs> are not solo founders. Um, but yeah, I think in the grand scheme of things, like the one thing that I will say is I ascribe a lot of this to luck. I've been very lucky throughout my career overall. Um, and I've been lucky to land here. Now, I would not overstate that I'm somehow this magical, brilliant person. Uh, I ascribe probably like at least half of my outcomes to just being lucky. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. That's very interesting. And um, you were also mentioning something uh, the other day when we were talking is uh, that you're an introvert and you're here managing this community business. Um, tell me how to thrive as an introvert in a community business. Yeah, I. Um, it's been difficult in some ways, but uh, what's interesting about my personal brand of introversion is that I've always been a work extrovert. So, what I what I came to realize, especially in my early job, uh, my early jobs were that people who were vocal would get attention and they would get promotions and people would pay, listen to them. And I came to realize, like, well. A, I have a forceful personality. I kind of do like talking. And so I'll just burn all my social energy at work. And at night I'll go play video games and read books and like maybe talk to one person, that being my fiance. <laughs> and that's it. Um, but like, if you meet me after the hours of like five or 6 PM, I'm basically a zombie. Like I cannot carry on a conversation. Um, yeah, so I really put it all out during my work hours and uh, that's a personal choice. I don't know if that would work for everyone. But the other thing that I do is I'm really good about protecting my time. Um, and so Wednesday every week typically is my no meeting day. I thought it, no meeting day was a good day for us to have our chat. So that's why I, you know we're doing this today. <laughs> but uh, typically I spend my Wednesdays just doing quiet work. I don't talk to anyone else uh, other than like the occasional Slack. And I think, what is the biggest project that I can take on in this given day? And I try and go crush that project, whatever it is. It might be making a new course. It might be amending our website. It might be doing social media marketing. Whatever that happens to be. Um, that's typically how I spend my Wednesdays. And then um, I think those are probably the two big principles. Mm, interesting. And um, do you spend uh, like a lot of time engaging the community? Yeah, so I try to check out uh, all of my communities at least every couple of days. And if there are, I especially lean in where people ask a question, mem where members are asking questions or needing help and not getting responses. So we had an example of someone recently saying like, hey, I'm looking to understand the business model of how orphanages work. And we don't have any members who are in that space. And so no one responded to that person. And um, I was thinking to myself, like, what do I know? Or like, what resources can I think of off the top of my head that would enable this person to get the answers they need? 
And uh, I happen to be part of this thing called an expert network. It's called GLG. It's a way that people can compensate you for your time um, and your expertise. And um, I'm like, all right, well, maybe there are people in expert networks who know about this topic. And so I just linked her, uh, this woman, a couple of expert networks. She's like, amazing. Like, I already reached out to one of them to see if there's a fit here. Um, and so I, I try and go make sure that no one's falling through the cracks. But ultimately, David does such an exceptional job of really being there for the members, engaging them, running classes, all that stuff. Like, he's very much our community experience, member experience guy. Love it. And uh, I want to take a little segue here and get to the other question that uh, I also had in my uh, questions list, which is, um, you described your management style uh, when we were talking earlier, Ken, as a servant leadership style. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I believe a lot of things about management, I'm sure, probably more than we can discuss on this call. Uh, <laughs> But I think one of the things is you should not assign people work that you yourself would not do. And so I think that's one of the principles that I hold very dear, uh, especially because if you want to be a great manager, you also need to be a practitioner. Um, my fiance has gone through her MBA recently and all of her school is very much a research university. So the professors are theoretical in nature. They've done research, they've written books but none of them are practitioners. And so she'll come back home from class and say, oh, I was in marketing today. And um, you know, my professor said this, but it's completely wrong. And it's evident this person has no idea what they're talking about. And uh, she's a, you know, a marketing revenue biz dev leader who's grown companies by multiple millions of dollars. And so I trust her much more than I trust these random professors. Yeah. And so I very much believe like, Whatever the meanest, meagerest, most terrible job is at the firm, I should have some experience doing it. And ultimately, if it's deemed that it, no one else at the firm has a good idea of how to do that job or their skills don't lend themselves to that job, I should be the one doing that job. And my focus should be on how can I make that job happen as efficiently as humanly possible. And so early on, we had... Uh, um, this internal issue where Ankit, you know, our account management guy was sending invoices and renewal reminders about membership to people by hand. And I thought, well, that's kind of nuts. It seems like that's a solved problem in the world. I've definitely seen other companies automate this. Why are we doing this by hand? And I would ask Ankit like, hey, where are you spending your time? And then I would ask, all right, like, do you think you should be spending your time on these things or do you have other things that you'd rather be doing? And um, the, he would come back and say like, yeah, I'm spending half my day sending these stupid invoices and it's obviously a waste of time. Like I should be writing newsletters or doing blog posts or something else. And um, so I would watch him. I would like shadow him doing, you know, what really is not that meaningful of a responsibility in the grand scheme of the business, but I would shadow him. I would try and send my own invoices. And then ultimately I started poking around in our tooling and I found this buried setting that said, oh, we can automate sending this thing for you. And I toggled that on. I went back to him and he's like, oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> so that's my approach to servant leadership is like, I will take on the work that no one else either enjoys doing or is exceptional at. I think people really should be in their zone of genius, which is 
what work gives you energy and what work are you exceptional at? Um, and I've been lucky in my career that I've picked up a lot of random skills. Like I can do basically every non-technical function out there to a passable level of quality. Um, not saying I'm great at it. I'm, you know, I'm fine at operations. It's probably my thing, but you know, I can do marketing or sales or whatever else decently. And, um, so if everyone on the team is like, Hey, we don't like analytics. We're not good at analytics. I'm like, all right, I'll go do analytics. Um, and ultimately that's how I think about where does the business need me? It's a stack ranking of where can our talent pitch in? Um, and what does the business need done to keep moving? And so, you know, when I joined, a lot of that was analytics work because we didn't have reliable metrics. And then it was a lot of this selling work because we didn't have salespeople. And then I imagine, um, you know, in the future, a lot of it will be creating new communities to round out more of our offerings. Like we're thinking about doing a job seeker community for people who uh, have been caught up in layoffs or they don't know how to navigate the job market right now. Um, and that's something that I love doing, right? I started a training company. Like this is something that I enjoy quite a lot. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that was a bit of a ramble, but that's ultimately what servant leadership means to me. I love your management style. Again, as I said before, um, this is so inspiring to me. I mean, I wish I just said, like, I wish I had a manager like this. And um, Me too. This... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is amazing because... Um, this is very uh, like empowering. If I put my myself in the shoes of uh, somebody who's reporting to you, and I, I'm, I can focus myself and do the work that I am like really energized by. I know that I'll be more productive and I'll be happier and I'll have a more fulfilling work life. And um, the second thing that I want to say is uh, this really brings out the uh, generalist in you. So uh, it feels like you have you have built yourself as a generalist and then this role requires you to um, just bring that generalist side of you and put it to use. Yeah. Um, I think I've probably always been a generalist and at risk of like disparaging myself, probably a dilettante. Like I do a lot of things, not very deeply. Um, I don't know. I get curious about a lot of things. I've always been a very curious person. I was, you know, I never grew out of the toddler phase of being that annoying kid asking why, 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 why. Um, yeah, I think my parents are still annoyed by that probably. Uh, but really how the way in which I've become a generalist has been, I started a startup back in 2013 when I was in university and it failed. And that really broke my self-confidence. And up to that point, you know, I had been very academically rigorous. I'd been top of my class and, you know, I was full of myself. I was arrogant. I'm like, there's no problem that I can come across that is going to stump me. And um, to fail at something that I spent years doing that I built a team on that I got people to buy into, it was very humbling. Um, and I realized like my commercial sense is actually very bad. Like I'm a decent product-minded person. I'm decent operationally. I can hire people, I can motivate them, but do I know how to run a business rather than just like a product development uh, effort? Probably not. And to realize that about myself after 
doing business school as an undergraduate degree, after having all these business internships, after starting a number of various random startups, was a painful thing in my self-concept. Um, and so after that failed, I decided, all right, I'm going to go into consulting because I want to rebuild my confidence and I want to learn a lot about a lot of things. And I was actually very lucky to land at an R&D uh, consultancy that one day they might do a food product and the next day they'll do architecture and the next day they'll do software. And uh, we got to cater to household names, you know, Fortune 500s like Google, um, Uber, other ones. And so I got a lot of amazing experiences inside of big companies. And I got mentorship from people who were highly commercial. And they could point to one point in a model and say, like, actually, if you toggle this one thing in the spreadsheet by 0.01%, this business is going to earn another million dollars. And that is actually a real case study from a project I worked on. Um, and that learning experience, I think, has been among the most formative things in my life. When I joined that company, I was actually scared of my coworkers because of how smart they were. And I think that's the first time in my life that, that that's ever happened to me. Um, and so that was really gratifying and a, and a really rewarding experience for me. And at that job, I also started realizing like, there are things here that no one wants to do, but the business needs them. Maybe I should go do those things. And, uh, you know, one of those examples was we had a voice over IP provider to run our phone systems and we were paying far too much. And the managing director of the firm said, Hey, like, why are we doing this? Can you go find me a solution? I'm like, yeah, I know nothing about VoIP providers, but like, yeah, maybe. Uh, and so I started looking into different options and then we hit on Zoom and this was way before the pandemic. So no one was really using Zoom as much back then, except for certain enterprises. And um, we, I realized like, oh, taking on Zoom would drop our cost annually by 11K. So great, like straight out of the gate, good savings there. And then I realized, well, wait, all of our junior people on staff are sitting in these meetings taking detailed transcriptions. Zoom has a transcription feature. Why don't we just start using that? <laughs> and then I did the math and I'm like, if we assume that our staff bills out their hours to clients at this rate, and they take meeting notes at this rate, actually we could save like a million dollars of billables every year that we could rebill out to clients. <laughs> and uh, that's how I started learning to do things that no one wanted to do. And uh, I've done that ever since. Like I just take on all the projects that no one likes. This is very amazing. And thank you so much for sharing this. Um, this is also a perfect way for us to segue into our last game of this uh, interview, which involves yeah. very much to do with uh, being a freshly graduate out of college. So uh, I'll pass it to Piyush again. <laughs> yes. So in this round, I'm going to be a 20-year-old fresh out of college, and I'm going to present some scenarios, and you tell me what I should do in those situations. Okay. So I'm fresh out of college. I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I don't want to do what people around me are doing. What should I do? Hmm. Okay, uh, I have an idea here. Um, are you guys familiar with this uh, website called pioneer.app? Yeah. I would recommend uh, Yeah, so Pioneer is basically an online tournament for ideas. 
and they accept anyone all over the world with really you just have an idea, whatever idea it is. And your idea is pitted against the ideas of other people and your mechanisms to refine and sharpen that idea are peer feedback and metrics. And what this teaches you to do is, A, you learn a lot about what other people think are interesting. And so maybe you learn cool things and get exposed to other interesting ideas that way. But if you've got something that you actually want to do, you can, or even many ideas that you might want to work on, you can put those into the world in a very low risk way and see like, oh, are people reacting to me in a way that indicates this is interesting, right? Am I, and it'll, it's basically an accountability engine for you to uh, go get updates metrically and in writing. So like, oh, I talked to these customers, I got this feedback, or oh, I won this amount of new revenue last week, or oh, I did whatever. And so week over week, this thing, it's free and it's holding you accountable to advancing whatever idea you have. And as a knock-on effect, you learn about the ideas that other people have. And um, I think it helps to increase your ambition because there are people who are you know, in their teens who are doing things that are blowing my mind, like things that I'm mentally incapable of understanding how they do. Um, and the nice thing is that if your idea sort of wins the tournament, if you're in like the top 50, you get a trip to San Francisco, they take, they give you funding for your business idea, you get to go run the business. Um, and so actually with Upslope, I was a finalist and I actually had to turn down that because I got acquired. And uh, <laughs> years ago, I actually applied to be the first BizOps person at uh, Pioneer and I was in the interview process with them as well and ended up getting another offer and I was just hungry to get a job at that point. So uh, yeah, that's how I landed there. But yes, Pioneer is my recommendation. Okay, I want to start a startup, but I don't know how to do marketing or sales. What do I do now? Well, I think some of it's a framing problem. It's like marketing and sales are just names we give to talking to other people. So it doesn't have to be a big scary monolith. You don't need to worry about, you know, the hundreds of years of research or the textbooks or anything like that. Really, the job is, can you talk to another human being? If you can't, maybe you shouldn't be a founder but, <laughs> because your life is going to be very difficult. Um, but really, ultimately, start with one person, right? Figure out one person who might be interested in the thing you're working on. Maybe that's a friend from university. Maybe that's someone in your neighborhood. Maybe that's your, you know, your cousin who happens to work in this industry. Maybe it's your mom's friend. I don't know. Maybe it's your dentist, uh, whoever, right? Um, and then go talk to them, have a conversation about whatever it is that you're working on. And then at the end of that conversation, ask them, Hey, do you know two or three people that might want to talk to me about this? And typically people want to be nice, especially to young people. Um, and so you can use those connections to say, hey, like this person who we know in common really thought I should talk to you. I have this idea. I'd love your feedback on it. Can you give me 15 minutes? And you know, you don't need to spend 30 minutes as, as we've learned today. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so I think really that's, uh, that's the way of going about it. And uh, it, it certainly does work. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, I've landed my first job, but I want to accelerate my career beyond what normal people do. How do I go about it? Yeah, so typically what I find is that acceleration only happens up to a certain point at large companies. 
like if you're at a Google or a Goldman Sachs or whatever, big companies, they have these built out promotion cycles, right? You're only going to get promoted every two years. The, they look like this, the criteria are this. It's hoop jumping to a certain degree. And so if you really want to accelerate your career quite a lot, the best place you can go is to a small business, whether that is a venture-backed startup or not, kind of up to you. Um, you need to just see that the culture of a non-venture-backed startup is germane to this. And you typically see that by checking, are there other people who are growing quickly? If, if I look on LinkedIn, do I see other people whose titles have changed in the span of six months, a year, not just every two years like clockwork? And then so once you realize like what sorts of companies actually enable this behavior, the thing that I would do is going back to, I would take on the work that no one else wants to do, but is important to the business. And so at my last job, I cycled through every non-technical role at the company. So I came on as a biz ops manager. I became chief of staff. I ran all of their regulatory compliance. I was like the interim finance leader, HR leader, IT leader, head of ops. I did every non-technical role at the company except for marketing, even though I did, I consulted, so I did internal consulting for the marketing team and the sales team as well. So yeah, every non-technical function at that company at some point or another. Um, and the way that happened was when someone asked like, hey, are you capable of helping with this? Internally, I would think probably not. Like I have no idea what you're talking about, but to them I would say, yeah, I'll help. And I knew nothing about regulatory compliance. And this was in the insurance industry in the US. And if you know anything about insurance in the US, it is a disaster because every state regulates insurance separately. So you need to maintain compliance in 50 states. Uh, all their laws are different, everything's different. So basically I had to go figure out like, hey, how do I learn about this? How do I start tracking whether we're in compliance? And then how do I make this run in a way that's operationally efficient? And, you know, that was my first project of something that like no one at our company wanted to do it because it sucked. And um, I took it on and I figured out how to make it work. And then it was just more, you know, things snowballing from there. Like I just took on other things that people hate. Wow. Thanks for your advice, Rahul. Back to you, Nadesh. Yeah, this was fascinating, Rahul. I know that we're almost at time, but I have a lot of questions. So I'm going to just pause it here to respect our time. But this has been an amazing conversation. I have loved listening to you and you've sort of become my inspiration. And a lot of the ideas that you've shared here, <laughs> they have, uh, yeah, they're really powerful. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing them with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a long time since I've done anything like this, so I, I was really glad to be here.